Will you please stand as I read God's word? This is from Romans 12, 9 through 21. Let love be without hypocrisy. Detest evil. Cling to what is good. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack diligence and seal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be persistent in prayer. Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's sight. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, I am in awe that you would see beyond the enmity that was between us as sinners. The offenses that you've absorbed, the disdain that you've received from your creation is appalling, yet you have shown us mercy. Lord, you have loved us fervently day after day, even in times when we, your people, return to rebellion. You are truly faithful and just towards us in Christ. So as you have done with us, help us to do with each other. Equip us and guide us into acts of mercy and grace. When evil is directed towards us, may we absorb its blow without deflecting it to another, and instead offering in return grace and truth. Speak powerfully through Pastor Daniel that your people will see your good ways and rejoice. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Patrick. So you guys listen to every word of that passage because we're going to reference it a lot. Um, My name is Daniel. And I am the worship pastor here. I love getting the opportunity to, to bring the word to you today. The last time I got the opportunity to preach was the first day that we were closed for the pandemic. And so instead of it being all you lovely people, it was a camera right about where that gentleman in the white shirt is. And uh, I got to tell you, this is way better. So we're continuing on in our God of All Grace series. And this is from the, the first letter of Peter. And he is, um, I, before we do that, we're going to do a lot of context stuff today because we've been in this series for a while now. And sometimes we, we forget the context of the letter. And really, as we've gone through this series, it has been uh, tremendous that the Lord led us to, to make a decision to do Peter right at the start of, of all the, the madness. But it was a few months ago that we talked some of the context, so we're going to do a lot of that today, and it's important because it, it gives such meaning to the text. It's really easy to kind of go piece by piece and start to forget, like, okay, here's the next passage that we're going to talk about. So this is a letter written from Peter, from Rome, to the Gentile Christians of Asia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And these Gentiles have been converted to a distinctly Jewish 
religion. It's something entirely foreign to them. And unlike Peter, it's not the water that they likely grew up swimming in. And even though they have been converted, they are still being inundated constantly with residual Greek religion and philosophy, the prevailing Roman uh, rule and its culture, and then their own regional and family cults and idolatry, as well as their local economic culture. And these forces are competing to constantly shape the worldview and the belief system of these newly converted Christians. And add to that that they have they're likely facing relational persecution that comes with leaving the idolatry of, of the family. Families would, would have a, a, a household God that they would worship. And so they've likely, in, in denying that God, been put out of family fellowship. Many have likely been excluded from membership in guilds or in trading in the marketplace because their refusal to honor the God of the guild or the marketplace. And now they are beginning to face active persecution from the Romans for their refusal to identify Caesar as Lord. So you couple this persecution, this new persecution, with the pressing cultural influences, and it is akin to trying to remain upright under the power of a crushing waterfall that is intent upon eroding the foundation of your faith and your satisfaction in Christ. Peter is writing this letter to a weary people. People who, who likely feel as though they are foreigners in their own land. They likely feel that they are exiles in their own community. And Peter writes to them and he affirms that, yes, that's exactly what you are. But he ministers truth to them. Peter is recognizing and validating their experience of ostracization and suffering, but they're not coddling. He's not coddling them and, and, and telling them, oh, poor baby. He is connecting them to a greater reality of where they belong and who they belong to. And he connects these new brothers and sisters to the earthly story of God's people. To, he connects them to the promises of Israel, but he also connects them to the transcendent family of God throughout the earth and throughout history. And to this, he connects them to this mystical union with Christ who is seated at the right hand of God. He points them to their new reality in him. And look at how, we're going to look at how Peter does this. He does it really well in chapter 2, uh, verse 9 through 12. It's kind of a, the last section that we've gone through. It's kind of the controlling pas passage for that. And it starts out like this. He's writing to these, these people. And he says, but you are a chosen race, even though you've been rejected by your people. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, even though you were part of a people, even though you were part of a family, even though you were part of a culture, you were not a people. But now that you have, now that you have Christ, you are now God's people. And once you had not received mercy, when when life was good and you had a roof over your head and you had the, the fellowship of your friends and family, you hadn't received mercy then. But now, 
but now you have received mercy. And because of that, he says, dear friends, I urge you, and here's where he affirms them, I urge you, as strangers and exiles, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourself honorably amongst the Gentiles, so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and they will glorify God on the day that he visits. And then he goes on to show what those honorable good works amongst the, the that honorable conduct amongst the Gentiles looks like. And he talks first about the submission to, you know, about the, uh, the, the way, what it looks like with the government authorities and the, the social and economic forces. And then last week, or the last two weeks, Pastor Ryan has been talking about what it looks like inside the, the context of the family. And now he, he opens the gates instead of these specific realms. He says, now all of you, finally, all of you. So turn with me in your device to our passage today. It's, it's, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And it goes like this. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life, and this is him quoting from the second half of Psalm 34, for the one who wants to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. So Peter is exhorting us here, and it's, an, encouraging and, it's a, an encouragement and a warning. He's exhorting us here that because we are born into the world, and we are called, we are called to be in the world, we have to be aware that usually our default coping mechanisms are worldly. That is our first point for today, that our default coping mechanisms are almost always worldly. Every human being, when facing trial or conflict, especially if it is an acute traumatic stress or if it is a regular ongoing stressor, all of us develop and use a response that we commonly call coping mechanisms. And as we've been discussing, Peter is writing to people who are under regular stress, and much of it is tied directly to their conversion. These folks in Asia Minor are getting kicked from their trade unions and their homes because God has called them to no longer walk in the way of their former ignorance. And if you, if you don't, you, we don't understand here how serious conversion was uh, because most of the time when somebody converts to their faith, we're like, oh, okay, like, cool, Kanye converted or, you know, this person, you know, <laughs> Cat Stevens converted. It's, it's kind of, a, oh, okay, like, that's too bad. We want him to know the truth or whatever. But that's not how it was then. That's not how it was then. The, to, to see how deeply connected culture and trade uh, was to idolatry. Remember the story in Acts 19? Paul walks into to Ephesus and he starts preaching the gospel and a riot breaks out. 
And for hours, the crowd gets stirred up to just start chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? The guy who started that, his name was Demetrius. Right? His name is Demetrius, which, which indicates that his family likely worshipped the goddess Demeter and named him in honor of her. So you've got that, 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 uh, that family cult going on. But what was the conflict there? They were worried that the conversion of people away from the worship of Artemis would disrupt the economy because they're making idols and, and you know, the, the, the market serves to, to feed all the worship that's happening in this temple. But they also thought that they were going to make Artemis mad at them. Right? They were worried that the goddess would stop blessing them. So imagine that. Imagine that your conversion is seen as an attempt to end the blessings of God on your culture. And we're, start, we're starting to see this a little bit with Christianity. People are, are, are starting to see, to, to call Christianity evil and a, and a, and a perpetrator of evil and, and, a, and a net negative in society. But really, most of us have never experienced anything like that. Most of us, we converted, people went, oh, I agree or I don't agree. There's a few people where it's cost us a lot, but nobody has ever thought you were trying to destroy the fabric of our society and the blessings of God upon us. So put yourself in that situation. You've converted, you're kicked out of your family, you're a, you're a, a social outcast because you are trying to ruin the good thing that you've got going with your local God. What would be your temptation in that moment? Your particular temptation in that moment? How would you cope with this? You see, in our flesh, our coping is, is usually not done in holy ways, right? We medicate with food or with alcohol or with drugs. We check out with sports or video games or pornography. We talk, you know, horrible things about the people who hurt us or wronged us. Um, or we just grumble constantly. And I believe that Peter knows that that is our tendency and so he gives us this, these prohibitions here in 1 Peter 3, where he says, do not pay back evil for evil or insult for insult. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil. And the word evil here is the same word that is used in Mark 7 to describe the, the state of the human heart out of which flows fornication and theft and murder and adultery and sensuality and slander and pride and foolishness and generalized wickedness. Peter's warning us to stay away from the sensual and the immediately gratifying mechanism, coping mechanisms of this world. He's saying, do not cope like the world would have you cope. Do, the world is constantly trying to assault you with its solution to your problem, its solution to your discontent. Just take this pill. Buy that thing. Uh, if, you, if you send that tweet or you have that relationship or you give up that responsibility or you just compromise on your, on your Christian claims. Don't take such a hard line. All things will be better. And we read in Romans 12 before the sermon, and you might have recognized a similar list of these prohibitions. In fact, it's similar phrasing. And it's likely so similar because it's referencing some type of catechism of the early church. And we need 
to be catechized. We need to be catechized. We need to be indoctrinated with the truth of God. Because like the Gentile Christians in Asia Minor, we are surrounded by a culture that is trying to shape our worldview and our belief system. As Pastor Ryan reminded me this week, the world is constantly trying to catechize us. And if you don't believe me, how many, I want, if anybody knows the answer to this, somebody knew it in first service, I was surprised. But how many hours of media, screen time, music, what, video games, whatever, how many hours of media is the average 13 to 18 year old exposed to per day in America? I got six, I got eight. Nine hours. Nine hours of other people's thoughts. Nine hours of other people's worldviews poured into their eyes and into their ears and into their hearts. It is literally the world's full-time job to indoctrinate young people, to catechize young people. And it's nonstop for adults too. Think of the last time you walked into a place where music wasn't playing or there wasn't a screen showing something or you weren't listening to a podcast on your phone. Think of the last time you just sat in silence for a moment. Right? It's, not, it's nonstop for, for adults as well. And think about the content. Think about the content of what, of, of what, that, uh, of, of what is contained in that media. Right? Think about our political discussions in this country. What are they comprised of? Returning evil for evil. Returning insult for insult. Reviling for reviling. The riots in the street over, over these perceived injustices, whether they're social or, or economic or, or political. What is that? It's returning evil for evil. And the media's never-ending spin, the tw whether it's 24-hour news, whether it's uh, you know, Facebook and Twitter, whether it's YouTube or talk radio, right? It is, it's full of people who purport to be honest and balanced and out for the truth. But time and again, you see people in position, posi positions misrepresented and maligned, facts left out of stories, voices silenced, and subjective feelings reported as objective facts. What is that? It's deceitful speech. It's the water. It's the water that we swim in. And like water running over a landscape, it begins to shape and form whatever it's flowing over. You, it just does. Unless it is intentionally interrupted, intentionally diverted, in some way intentionally controlled. But lest we think that it's just some external poison that makes us this way, <clears throat> we have to remember that these worldly and sinful coping mechanisms have been with us since the fall. Put two two-year-olds in the room together with one toy. <laughs> right? Listen, Cain murdered Abel. Cain's jealousy, whether it was because he, he thought Abel was specially privileged by God or he thought that some injustice had been done, but his jealousy caused him to kill his brother, to commit evil and destroy. But Christianity isn't just about not doing bad stuff. It's, about not, it's not just about not doing uh, what's wrong. 
Peter, who is recognizing our fundamental identity as citizens in the heavenly kingdom in this book, he's reinforcing that we're not, to be, we're not called to be of this world. And he reminds us that our calling is to respond supernaturally to these circumstances. Our calling is to, be, to respond supernaturally to trial, to persecution, to suffering, to loss, to discomfort, to masks, to no masks, to disease. We are called to respond supernaturally. But how do we do that if our natural tendency, if our natural tendency is worldly? How do we respond otherworldly? So throughout the New Testament, there are these things called indicatives and imperatives. And imperatives are the things we're talking about right now. They're those authoritative commands that we find in the Gospels and in the epistles, and they're the things that form our Christian mission, our morality, our behavior, uh, and they're the things that we as a Christian community can hold one another accountable to. And the most famous of the New Testament imperatives is usually what we call the Great Commission, right? In verse 19 of Matthew 28, it says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. Right? That's our mission statement of, of our church. And, but sadly, most people outside the church think that this is all that Christianity is. It's one big list of strict imperatives, of commands that they must obey. And what the real tragedy is that many within the church believe that as well. They believe that Christianity is simply a theological affirmation of X, Y, and Z regarding Trinitarian monotheism. And then it is a lifelong effort simply to just obey all of the giant list of imperatives. So as somebody who is a default imperative follower, I just want to know what to do. That is an exhausting way to live. It's exhausting. And what you find is you do the right thing and it brings no joy. You do the right thing and it satisfies no need in your house. You do the right thing, right? And it's because we need to grasp and meditate upon and delight ourselves in the indicatives of Scripture as much as we look to the imperatives of Scripture. Otherwise, we're missing out on a fundamental piece of being conformed into the image of Christ. You see, indicatives are the why. They're the why behind the what of the imperative. It's the fuel that sustains the fire of our affections and our actions. So how many of you caught that I actually misquoted Matthew 28? How did I misquote it? I misquoted it because I said, go and make disciples. What it really says is, go therefore and make disciples. Well, what is that therefore, therefore? It's therefore, verse 18, where Jesus proclaims himself the sovereign king of heaven and earth. The one to whom Psalm 2 would say, every king and every country and every nation has an obligation that owes their allegiance to him. He's saying, I am the king. You are my ambassadors. That's the indicative. Now go and make disciples of all people. Now here's your imperative. And you must have the right indicative for the imperative. 
because it's what drives obedience. Now, if I were to give you the same indicative, if I were to look at all of you and say, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. (laughs) Go and therefore make disciples. What would your real imperative be? To stand up and walk out and never listen to another word that I said, right? And so we're going to finish looking at the, 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 the imperatives that Peter gives us. But again, this isn't just this, this list of, of things to do and not to do. Because it's not just prohibitions that he gives us, it's imperatives to do something. He says, so during your trial and during your persecution and during your relational strife and during all of these horrible things that you're walking under the weight of, here's what you do. Be like-minded and sympathetic. Do you know what being like-minded and sympathetic means? It means that you are able to understand and accurately represent another person's point of view, including those who you don't agree with, in a fashion that that person would be able to say, yeah, that's exactly what I believe. He says, in the midst of all this trial, all this hatred, love one another. And this isn't just some hippy-dippy, like, yeah, man, like, love each other. And can't we just be cool? Dude, this is the language of family. Love one another like your family. Love Love these people like your children and your brothers and sisters and your parents. Love one another. And he says, be compassionate and humble. Bless and do not curse. This means that Facebook needs to be off limits for some of you. Seek peace and pursue it. Again, Facebook may be off limits for some of you. But what is the indicative for all of these imperatives? It's all of 1 Peter chapter 1 and 1 Peter chapter 2. He's saying, redeemed in Christ, you are something otherworldly. Now, act like it. Embrace it. Embody it. So that in the the face of trial and tribulation, in the face of persecution and reviling, you can not only subdue your natural desires, but you can act in an unnatural way. Rather than becoming obstinate and unfeeling for others in the midst of your self-righteous victimhood, you are rather like-minded and sympathetic. Rather than hating as you have been hated, you can respond in love. Rather than being arrogant and indifferent to anyone who isn't struggling with the exact same thing that you are, you're able to access true compassion and be humble. Rather than spitting back venom at those who curse you, you're able to respond with a blessing. And rather than dumping gasoline on every dumpster fire you come across, you can actually be a peacemaker in this world. And it isn't just unnatural. It's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, revealing that you are indeed a member of God's chosen race. That you indeed are an inheritor of light, that you have been translated from the kingdom of darkness, and you are now a, a citizen of the kingdom of the beloved Son. But if we are segregated from the indicative, if our mind constantly moves to the imperative, we never spend any time knowing the why behind the what, we are destined to fail in obedience. 
And this has serious consequences, and not just serious consequences for the individual, because sin hurts and it gets us in all kinds of trouble. It has serious consequences because you see, we are being watched. All the conspiracy theorists in here are like, I know, man, let me tell you how. (laughs) Everybody say hi to the NSA. Um, No, but we are, we're being watched, whether passively or actively, we're being watched by the surrounding culture to see how we're going to respond to the, to the trials and the persecution. In the moment that we respond as they would, they assume that what we claim to believe is a load of horse manure. So you may think that living in this type of a fishbowl is a little unfair, but that's the way that God ordained it. That's the way that he ordained the gospel to go forward. That when his people face both blessing and adversity, our response is our witness of what we really believe about Jesus. Our response is our witness of what we believe about Jesus. Verses 10 through 12 of this passage are a quote from the second half of Psalm 34. The first half of that psalm, uh, which we read as our call to worship last week, it's the one that said, this poor man cried and he rescued me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? This, this psalm is about a transforming experience of the reality of God's goodness and protection in the time of danger and persecution. But then the psalm calls the one who has experienced this to order their lives and hearts this way as a, a proper response to it. And next week, Pastor Jeff is going to talk about having a defense for the hope that is within us. But the implication is that the response of all the persecution that we're facing is a noticeable hope. That people actually ask about the hope that's within us. And then we have a response for it. But if our response to trial and persecution looks exactly like the world's response, then the world assumes one of two things that our words and our beliefs are empty or that they don't need what our words and beliefs are full of because they already have it. As an example, Romans 12 talks about not taking vengeance but leaving room for the Lord to avenge. Do you know what we are communicating to the world when we take vengeance? First, that God is not faithful to do what he said he will do. Second, that God is not really the one who can appropriately mete out justice. He needs our help. Third, that it is the satisfaction of our justice on our timeline that really matters. And fourth, that we, inheritors of mercy, do not believe that others are deserving of that same mercy. So can we reasonably expect any unbelievers to give glory to God because you got back at the person that harmed you? Do we believe that evildoers will give glory to God on the day of his coming because you cursed right back at the person who cursed you? Facebook example. A few years ago, my mom posted something on Facebook. And I'm the youngest, so like, you know, you got that weird youngest mom relationship. And uh, she, posted, she posted something, and uh, this, this man, who is three decades younger, probably, 
maybe even four decades younger than my mother, responded to her post in the most dismissive, demeaning way. And my little baby bear heart got so enraged. And I responded, I said, yeah, you know what? Maybe her post is rooted in ignorance or perhaps it's rooted in the fact that she has raised a family, contributed to society, lived all over the world, gotten her education, discipled you know, men and women, brought people into their home, loved, cared for, you know, and just went down this laundry list. But yeah, no, really, you might be right. She's just an ignorant, horrible person, right? And dude, this ate me up for days. Right? And we're intimately connected with this guy, so we have to see him at certain points. And it ate me up for days. It rented all this space in my head, and, and it's still, it's one of those things. It's still, when I think about it, it starts to, right? Do you know what that eating you up thing is? That's called holding a grudge. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you that praise God that Daniel held that grudge is not going to be a chorus that we hear at the end of days. When we do these things regularly, when we fail in the imperatives of the faith, it reveals that we have not been fully overwhelmed and transformed by the indicatives of the faith. And it hinders our ability to bring glory to God. I'm going to share a story with you that I think demonstrates this profoundly. And I have been crying all week because of this story. And so I'm going to try to get through this. But on the 28th of February, 1944, a Christ-loving family, a family that was captivated by the gospel, in the German-occupied town of Harlem, the Netherlands, was arrested by the Gestapo for harboring Jews. They were betrayed by a Dutch informant that they had earlier tried to help. This family had been so transformed by Christ and his gospel that they had spent decades devoted to the care of the infirm, the poor, the developmentally disabled, and had become spiritual pillars of this community, discipling hundreds of men and women. And under the occupation... Nearly 900 people, Jews, uh, soldiers who were deserting, trying to escape the horror of the Holocaust, political dissidents, 900 people were rescued through their efforts, including 100 Jewish orphans who were slated to die in the next few days. They took German deserters' uniforms, walked into the orphanage, and rescued 100 children. And after their arrest, they were taken to a local jail where the father died 10 days into incarceration. And then the son, Willem, even though he survived to the end of the war, he succumbed just months after due to the tuberculosis that he caught in the camp that he was held in. And the two daughters were held for three months in solitary confinement, knowing that their father had passed before being interrogated, sent to a work camp, And then shortly thereafter, just a few weeks later, they were sent to the notorious Robinsbrook concentration camp. And they faced every horror of the camp together, all the while clinging to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Serving their bunkhouse by holding worship services every night 
with a smuggled-in Bible and planning ways to establish a place for all people to come and heal after the war. And at one point, the oldest, Betsy, so gripped as she was by, by faith in the goodness of God, reminded her sister in the midst of this horror, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. And on the 16th of December, 1944, Betsy died. One of the 50,000 women to die in that hellhole. And 15 days later, her sister Corey was miraculously released on a clerical error one week before every woman in her bunkhouse was killed in the gas chamber. Do you know what Corey Ten Boom did? She went right back to helping those trying to escape the horror of the war. And after the war, God opened up doors for her to tell her family's story around her country and soon around the world, including the country of her oppressors in Germany. And in 1947, she was speaking in Munich and she caught a glimpse of a man that she instantly recognized. He had been a guard at Ravensbrück. He had overseen their intake when they, were stripped, when they stripped her and her sister of their clothes, of their hair, of their dignity. This man had mocked and beaten them in the midst of it. And after her talk, in which she proclaimed the goodness of God and the, the breadth of his forgiveness, this man approached her and confessed to having been a guard at Robinsbrook, told her of his conversion to Christ, and rejoiced that his heinous sins had been forgiven, but that he would very much like to ask for her forgiveness. And he extended his hand to her. And these are Corey's words. Jesus, Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all of my heart. Her identity as a forgiven, mercy-washed, grace-filled citizen of the heavenly kingdom allowed her to do the supernatural and forgive a man who had brutalized and murdered her family. She embraced him as a brother because she believed that Jesus had made him her brother. She forgave him because she believed that Christ had thrown his sin, his wretched Christ-crucifying sin, into the deepest sea alongside her own. Her forgiveness of that man was her speaking a blessing to the one that had cursed her. It was a supernatural act, and I guarantee you that that man... <laughs> that that man and many others gave glory to God on the day that they saw him because of Corey Ten Boom. But Corey Ten Boom isn't the hero of our story. She isn't the captain of our salvation. She isn't the one who shed her blood to rescue us. She was merely one who was captivated and transformed by the one who did. 
It was Christ who came seeking peace when we were in rebellion. It was Christ who loved us when we hated him. It was Christ who was gripped with compassion over our lostness, even though we had willfully abandoned him. And it was Christ who forgave our sins, though they were like as scarlet. And it was Christ who blessed us while we were cursing him. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And when Christ hung on the cross, he prayed a prayer invoking God's blessing on those who were murdering him. When he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The prevailing hear this, the prevailing, transcendent, indicative for every imperative in the Christian life is Christ himself. It's Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, Christ ascended on high, seated in glory, and worthy. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our affection. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of all glory and honor now and forever. Corey Tenboom forgave the unforgivable because she was blessed. She was blessed by Christ with the forgiveness of her sins. But she was also looking forward to a future blessing. Not only did she receive the temporal blessings that come with not returning evil for evil, she assured herself of the future blessings that God has reserved for those who love and obey him. She entrusted the injustice she experienced to the judge of all of the earth, just like Christ did. And she was vindicated, both here and hereafter, just like Christ was. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the greatest blessing that the Lord will ever give to us, not just to declare us sons and daughters, but to make us in spirit and in character, sons and his sons and his daughters, not to usurp him as God, not to, to, to take over his position, but rather to, to inherit the blessing of life and union with him and to see others, even our enemies and our persecutors, enter into that same blessed existence. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up before we pray. Let me ask you, have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and does your life bear witness to it? Maybe there's that one big thing, that thing that's coming to your mind right now, that's cutting you off from experiencing the supernatural life that God has for you. Maybe it's a bunch of little things that have built up and multiplied and you just feel more controlled by the world than you do by the Spirit. Maybe you have never known the forgiveness and the mercy of Christ, so you walk around in shame and in condemnation, acting out to shame and condemn other people. But for all of you, I have good news today. Christ is not hanging on a cross asking for your forgiveness. He's seated at the right hand of the Father and he lives to ever make intercession for you. To ever seek your blessing before God. So cry out to him today. 
Don't hide from him any longer. As Peter says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Will you pray with me? Lord, the concept of dying for our enemies, of not returning evil for evil, insult for insult is beyond us, Lord. And yet you, the perfect and the holy Son of God, the only righteous man that has ever lived, was put to death for our sin and in the midst of it, he asked for our forgiveness. He asked that you would, you would bless us with the forgiveness of our sin. Lord, we want to be obedient people. We want to obey your imperatives. We want to act in such a fashion that people, the evildoers will see our good works and give glory to you at the end of days. But God, we want to be captivated by the truth of why we're called to do that. We want to be captivated by what you have done, who you have made us. And God, for those who are weary today, those who, those who, who may feel that I am being dismissive of their trauma, Lord, we know that you are our compassionate high priest who is aware of every infirmity. Lord, we ask your, your blessing on this time of worship and this time of response that we would, you know, that we would invoke your blessing. We would seek you in this time. We love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.